Welcome to the latest episode of The Grower and The Economist. I'm Michelle Klieger, The Economist. And I'm Peter Conjoyan, The Grower. Each week, we team up to tackle the biggest challenges facing small and medium-sized growers. We're one part grower and one part economist, just like your business. Welcome to this episode of The Grower and The Economist. This week, Peter and I are joined by Brian Rollman of Crack Hot Sauce. He is a local producer of hot sauce in the Massachusetts area, and I met him at a Sustainable Business Network local trade show. What drew me most to his hot sauce, besides the samples, was that the most of the produce is sourced locally in Massachusetts, um, and just the sheer number of farms that he is supporting with his business. Uh, I think that this is a great opportunity to for farmers to learn how value-added production works and how to communicate better with the supply chain. So thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, excited to be here and thanks for having me. Well, the place that Peter always starts is how did you get here? What did you grow up making hot sauce? Did you grow up with a huge garden? It's kind of a longer story, but it, it, this, is, this is the nice thing about podcasting is that it's a, a little bit of a longer format. So I'll give more than the 10 second introduction that we do at a lot of farmers markets. But uh, the story starts with my parents' garden. Uh, and growing up, uh, we've always had a garden and just some of my first memories are visiting the garden, eating sun gold tomatoes and raspberries off the vine. And when we're making a summer meal, just taking stuff off from the, the garden and, and just loving food growing up. I, I'd say I, I there's phases where I was like, oh, like these are just like, why can't we? <laughs> I don't know. Like there's phases where I didn't appreciate it as much as I do now. But I think that was the the seed, uh, no, no pun intended, that kind of started this all. So to, to talk about when I got into hot sauce, it wasn't into uh, a year after college. I, I was working in Boston <clears throat> and was uh, about to move to Ireland for a, a new job. And I have dual citizenship. My, my mom's side of the family uh, is from Ireland. And uh, I had a month off of work. And me and my dad will always uh, pick a couple new things to grow. And this year, we had been growing some golden ghost peppers. And uh, they were just coming in, and I took a bite of one. And it flipped my stomach and my head upside down and I, I barely held it down, <laughs> but then had this huge endorphin rush. And I was like, that was just the craziest thing I think I've ever done. I was like, what am I going to do with a hundred of these? Uh, <laughs> and so I ended up making a hot sauce and there was a, a farm right by us called Hutchins farm uh, there in Concord mass. And uh, they had some pumpkins. So we, um, kind of uh, roasted up some pumpkins, some pineapple, some onions, garlic, carrots, and ginger, and uh, had no kind of recipe or expectations. And when I we came up with the sauce, it, it was like, whoa, this tastes pretty good, but it's also different. Like, this is unlike anything I had tasted before. So that just, I kind of just bookmarked that as like, huh, that, that that's interesting that there's a lot of different directions you can kind of go with hot sauce, but it's also hot sauce is kind of like a spicy soup. But anyways, like I was a, was moving to Ireland and the company that I was working for was called HubSpot. 
and HubSpot um, is a kind of marketing and sales Swiss Army knife software. And, and I was going to be selling it, but the, the whole company makes everybody start kind of their own fake business or project to learn how to use the software as a small business. And it's, they encourage you to do something about your that you're passionate about. And so I was just like, oh, I've just been making hot sauce. Like they actually give you a, a credit card to buy a website name. So I, I bought crafthotsauce.com for like $20. And it's like, now I have to write five blog posts and write emails about hot sauce. And I was like, I don't, I'll, I'll share my recipe that I just made up, but like I got to cold call some people to learn about hot sauce. So I called a, a sous chef in uh, Brooklyn, New York. I called a, a live fire kind of cook uh, in Argentina and a Irish expat in Berlin and that they're all hot sauce people. And I had conversations with them and they all came with really unique, different directions to what they were doing. And I would, that I, every conversation that I had, I really enjoyed. Um, so I, I did this project and I was just like, I'm actually still just very curious and enjoying this. So I have, I started a newsletter. I, um, have kept up this project since then. So I've actually interviewed over 250 different hot sauce makers and chili growers and farmers all over the world. And um, just try to share the stories and passion and inspiration behind that. While I was doing that and traveling kind of Europe and meeting different farmers and and makers, I think I was laying the seeds for what I wanted to start in kind of a lifestyle business. Um, And that is around... Uh, an Irish word, which is having good crack, like good, uh, good crack is good fun, good times uh, can be meeting a stranger, like a long lost friend and just taking people's energy. Um, so that's kind of evolved into being more community focused, being intimately evolved in every process that we're in. So that's kind of, it was a long evolution. I never at one point thought like I wanted to start a hot sauce company. It just kind of slowly came to me. And so crack sauce Started uh, pretty quickly after I, I moved back to uh, America and Boston in, in 2017, and we've been growing uh, slowly and steadily for the last five years. And Brian, just to fill in a couple of gaps for me, um, you mentioned after college, I'm guessing you studied either software or something in the business realm. Is that correct? I studied sport management, so oh. I wanted to be the the next Theo Epstein. Uh, my first job out of college was uh, selling season tickets with the Boston Celtics. Um, so I, I loved that job, but I was getting hints of entrepreneurship. I, I've kind of I read a couple books. I co- took a couple entrepreneurship classes in college, and I just loved the idea of learning, trying new things. Yeah. So I had an entrepreneurship bug that hit me pretty hard, uh, kind of in my early twenties. Well, congratulations on that. We, we, or I am guilty at times of only focusing my thoughts on fellow farmers who grew up in family farms. Mm -hmm. And Michelle, it's been brought to my attention that I need to widen, take those blinders off. So Brian, welcome. And, you know, as someone that did not as, as a close colleague of mine, Chris Curry at Iowa State University refers to the Lucky Zygote Club 
for those who grow up or are born into family farms and greenhouse operations, you're, you're not that. You came into the industry, so welcome. We embrace you. And Michelle, I'm, I'm trying to uh, widen my horizon and welcome in others uh, as easily as I talk about those who are in family operations. Well, and it just shows we have this conversation a lot about what this spectrum of home gardener to serious home gardener to small commercial operation to like commercial operation and how blurry those lines can be where you have someone like Renee, who's been on the podcast several times, and he's got enough of a garden that he supports 20 people. And he's, you know, using all of Peter's techniques of scheduling and so forth. And it you know, very much is the same way where Brian has turned a family garden, what started as a family garden into a business where he now, you know, does work with farmers and source ingredients and taking that knowledge. So it seems to really ebb and flow on what that definition should be. Brian, I interrupted. So please um, complete your, your introduction. You also are farming and are on the production side of agriculture too. I, I, I'd say we're dipping our, our toes into it. So that, that family garden is still uh, a family garden at the same spot. And, and my dad is actually really involved in uh, taking some classes and courses with farms. I just, I think that's been really, um, again, I might be a little biased because I'm in very in the industry, but I just see so many farms uh, doing work to educate their community on what is like no-till and regenerative farming and, and my dad's a volunteer at Gaining Ground, and every single time he goes there, he learns a ton and shares that with me. So that, that garden's still going on. Um, I got to give a, a really big shout out to Mill City Grows. Uh, they're an urban agriculture program in Lowell. And they last year invited us to start our, um, about 200 pepper seedlings in their greenhouse. Um, so it was kind of learning from them. And we had a, I think a 30 by 30 foot plot. Um, we're actually expanding to two plots this year. It's going to be like 40 by a hundred feet. Uh, and then we're also going to be partnering with the Rist uh, Sustainable Institute at uh, UMass Lowell. And we're going to be uh, planting uh, about 350 peppers uh, on a rooftop garden um, that they have worked with uh, their students and programs to uh, self-irrigation with computer like this is stuff that's like out of but but it's it's cool learning about different setups um and we're actually going to be using those peppers that we source in a special edition sauce for for umass lowell so um that's where we're at this year is we're starting about 1200 plants and uh three to four hundred of those are sun gold tomatoes so we are definitely at a hot sauce company at our roots, but I, I think of a uh, crack sauce as more of a, a culinary sauce company that you, something that you can get a shortcut to flavor and add ingredient into a salad, uh, a meal, a soup, stew, marinade. So we're, we're also have uh, kind of a, a sun gold tomato pasta sauce, which is very bright and floral and has loads of sun gold tomatoes, which takes so much time to pick, but it's so worth it uh, with the flavor and, and brightness that you get from it. So P 
people have told us that we're absolutely insane for trying to get more into farming because it's so hard and running a value-added food business is hard enough. Um, so that we're kind of taking this year as kind of a larger scale experiment. Like, can we do this profitably? Can we do it without breaking ourselves? <laughs> and because, uh, yeah, may- maybe we just focus more of that time and, and resources to support get all our produce directly from farmers or, or maybe we start to do a little bit more. Um, Cause that, that's what we're kind of thinking about is like, what is, is our long-term vision? And, and uh, we just want to have a little bit more experienced and educated outcomes just to, to evaluate our, our path and everything. Gaining that knowledge about farming, what led you to, to almost vertically integrate and go back and start 1200 plants this year? Yeah. Every single time I'm around a farmer, I just gain so much more respect for, for what they do, for how hard they work, how how much depth of knowledge that they need. It's also really interesting. And I, I just see how the money that we spend, but also farmers spend kind of goes back into literally the land or the people in the community. And again, I didn't, I, that wasn't the fire that lit me. Like when I started hot sauce right away, I thought this could be cool. I could meet interesting people have kind of a, not a a nine to five, get to be outside and work with my hands more. But that is now I'd say a lot of the fuel that, that gets us going is around that kind of community base and, and all just learning. And, and so, um, yeah, but I'd say a lot of that has come from, just the amazing farmers that we've met. And, and uh, it, it's, it's really impressive to see the, the farms around us. Uh, I'm in Lowell, so Eastern Massachusetts, there's a lot, but we've met a lot of folks that have really inspired us in Western Massachusetts and in other neighboring States as well. And um, so I think that's kind of a cool thing, like the hot sauce community, like we, we, I like to meet and highlight people from all over the world. And I think farmers do that too. Like when they travel to different countries and everything, like the, the world is so different in uh, different places and, and it's just kind of an endless puzzle, but it, it, it attracts a, a certain type of person, I'd say. The differences and similarities of food and agriculture around the world is something that I've truly enjoyed in my experience as well before living in Massachusetts I I joked that I basically lived on an airplane I spent a lot of time overseas and just some of the differences in the production methods in how much is hands-on in culture and goals there are a lot of places like the United States where we want to grow the you know biggest yield the you know produce and feed the world that mentality and there are just other places that they're like, you know what, we can feed ourselves and we want to have time to do other things. I appreciate the, that perspective and what you learned because I also found the same thing. You know what I'm finding fascinating? Listening to the two of you as next generation compared to my generation, the two of you, international travel, international experiences are already baked into your career paths and your life experiences. Whereas I've been to Amsterdam once for a conference and other than traveling to Canada fairly regularly, uh, my life has been spent uh, with my both feet on the ground here in, in the US. So I 
enjoy hearing how the three of us are within an hour of one another here in Massachusetts, yet the two of you have gone far and wide and brought back experiences and are able to weave them into your careers. Uh, congratulations, that, that makes me very happy to hear you guys traveling and bringing back ideas. Thank you. Yeah, and that's the cool thing is like, everybody has a, every culture has a culinary sauce and, and everybody has to grow and make food. Like, and, and that's a very simplified statement, but it, it's, 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 I'm really a curious person in those topics and areas and, and find that traveling. I actually just came back from Ireland. Um, I hadn't been for like four or five years and, and cherish being back. But I, I, re- I actually just had established some connections with people online in the hot sauce foraging fermenting community and got to meet with them. And uh, I, I came back with just beaming with, with excitement and I, new ideas. And, and we're actually trying some, some new products that um, I think were in the back of my head, but just having conversations and, and visiting a new place, they just gave me this new spark to, to have some new ideas for products that, yeah, you don't really see in the States, but in, in other places in the world you, you do. As you say that, I'm thinking back, we had um, a few months ago, we had a local farmer from Lincoln who is Bangladeshi and grows a lot of culturally relevant vegetables. And just like, as you've talked about small batches with University of uh, Massachusetts Lowell and other opportunities that like, it'd be interesting to see how the business grows and, you know, what opportunities there are for a, such a diverse area with, with, you know, knowing that there are different crops and that you could have these sauces of different cultures. Totally. Yeah. We, we use a lot of Galanga, uh, in, uh, which is, I, it's kind of more, I'd say common Southeast Asian cuisine. It, when, when, when we blend it up, we, we ferment it for about 10 months. Um, but it almost has this kind of wintergreen smell and it. it's more of an aromatic. Um, so it doesn't have a ton of, of flavor, but when, just the connection between the aromatics with the other kind of turmeric and lemongrass and sungle tomatoes and these uh, kind of floral scotch bonnet peppers. Um, it, it, I love doing tastings with people internationally uh, kind of from outside of the U S just because it says they, they might remind them of certain things and, and um, yeah, so, so it's cool. And, and other, there's a lot that you can find locally, I think we did 300 farmers markets last, not 300 different farmers markets, but we did like about 20 different farmers markets. So at our markets, we're talking to the the farmers, what they're growing, what, what they have a surplus of, and we can't buy from everybody. And, and I think uh, last year we sourced from 18 different farms, which was wow. a big challenge logistically. Uh, I don't know if that's the, the smartest business decision to make, but it, it's like, we we have gotten 100% of our, our peppers and tomatoes uh, directly from farmers that we know. So we, we have to kind of really hop on it in, in that growing season. But um, kind of what I've learned from selling season tickets with the Celtics to, to this job is just pick up the phone, call people, email people. Um, you'd be surprised what you can find locally with just a little bit of effort. 
So when you source with 18 different farms, I can't even imagine the logistics. So we don't have to dive too far into this. Are you picking up most of it? Is it like that you have a truck? Is it people show up with, you know? It's it's different with each farm, <laughs> which again, doesn't make it easy. But yeah, I, I'm just like, I, I wake up at six o'clock and have three text messages saying, hey, we're, we're picking today. But no, we... we um. It's been a process. So we started uh, sourcing from like three farms and then five, and then it just kind of grown. Most of these farms do a farmer's market or two or, or more. And a lot of times we just will coordinate with them to meet at certain farms uh, at farmer's markets. So we'll just take a, a, a few bushels of peppers, put them in our walk-in freezer at our, our, or a walk-in cooler at our kitchen. I'm communicating with them starting really throughout the whole year, but definitely starting in January, just saying, hey, this is what we're looking at for like kind of our best guess of what we'd like to source, the different types of peppers. So I'll give Small Farm and Stowe uh, kind of an example, like uh, reached out to them last January because um, the year before that, we were in a pinch for some peppers and we happened to find that they were growing some. So we kind of started a relationship um, from buying with them that way. And then I communicated with them in January saying, this is what we're expecting to get. Fresno peppers uh, were really tough for them last year. Um, and they're, I, I think they're just a little more susceptible to, I don't know, because like a, a lot of local farmers had trouble with Fresno's last year. So they were like, Brian, we're not going to do Fresno this year because that one like didn't work out with us, but we can do more cayenne and hot wax and sun gold. We were having a good routine of like, they were saying every two weeks we'll pick. And then in the height of the season, it was every week. And so we were like trying to plan around that, but it, as it's growing, it, it's, we're realizing we have to kind of just step up our organization and uh, logistics in that way. So, I mean, I guess you get what you wish for or be careful what you wish for because like I'm definitely learning a lot, but it, it comes in waves and at times it can be overwhelming. But um, we, we get through it with the team and um, we, yeah, and we try not to take ourselves too seriously as well because it's all about having the good crack. You said, and you started talking to them in January. This is one of those places that I find a huge disconnect between the farm and off the farm, where a farmer is excited about their seed catalogs that come in December, and they're purchasing everything in January, and they're making these decisions. And so oftentimes, whether it's an entrepreneur or a grocery store, when they call in May and say, actually, now we need, you know, 6,000 butternut squash, can you do it? That's not possible anymore. Yeah. And so hearing that you are, you know, adjusting to that January schedule and able to have these talks and plan ahead, I think is a huge value in local food systems is this ability to coordinate. You've talked about just picking up the phone, running into people at farmers markets, and that's the strength of the system. They get to tell you what's working for them. I can't really reliably grow these Fresno peppers. What else can we grow with you? And you're able to then look at your operation overall and, and adjust or, or give your input from what you've learned on the consumer side or what people are looking for or your sales. And 
that value chain coordination is underrated, but it was interesting to see that you kind of adjusted with the system. Totally. Yeah. That, that's, um, and, and that's what kind of small farms said to us and other farms, just like, thank you for doing this in advance because like it's, I've been at markets where it's really hard to sell a bottle of hot sauce at a certain time. And, and I can't imagine like our, we have a shelf life of two years, so it's like, it's okay. But when you have like a bumper crop of beautiful, whatever, and it's just like, it's like, you don't want to like, if you, I don't know, it, it just kind of breaks, breaks my heart, but it, it breaks their heart so much more. And just also thinking about just like the waste with the whole bigger picture of hunger and, and resource connecting resources and big topic, big challenge. But um, yeah, I, I think like what individual households can do is um, kind of CSAs and doing more seasonal cooking. Uh, I, when COVID started, uh, I don't think I went to a supermarket for the first nine months. Um, not because I was like afraid of going there, but it was just, I was getting all my stuff at farmer's markets and we ate totally seasonally. And I, I, I reaped the benefits of eating healthier, more nu- nutrition and, and just also get, having fun in the kitchen with, so, okay, we have like a bunch of turnips and parsnips. Like, did you know, like parsnips in February are like super concentrated in sugar and like almost tastes like candy when you like, I had no idea, but like, you don't know what you do until like something shows up on your door. This is not unique to hot sauce. I have a good friend, Tom at Grateful Taste that does hyper local jellies and jams and, and, uh, he's doing the same thing that we're doing and there's tons of other value added producers. So, um, that's what I, I think is really cool and a, a, a big model, which I might, I'm, I'm just kind of riffing right now, but I just might, I, I, it connected with me. So Clark farm is a, a real organic farm in Carlisle mass. And, and we had been sourcing stuff from them. And I, I knew that they had some excess peppers and those were peppers that we weren't um, using for our, our recipe. Uh, and so we, we were like, Oh, like, sorry, Andrew, like we're, we're all set with this. But then uh, I got a text from him just saying, hey, like, could you guys make a hot sauce? We have like 300 pounds of peppers. And I had a few, I had me and our crew had a morning off and we were like, let's let's just make a, a hot sauce with what they got. So they had kind of some green habaneros that weren't fully mature, but the frost was coming and they were definitely high quality and i mean everything that they do is really high quality but we just took a blend of peppers some golden beets red onions and carrots and fermented that and we just bottled it and we're actually going to be releasing it in uh at the very beginning of may they're going to be putting this into their csa and it's almost has like kind of a bitter bitter flavor because of the green habaneros and green peppers but then I've just been using this bitter flavor um, to balance off like kind of more savory meals. And it, and it, we just created a product that I never thought we would. But we did a spreadsheet of like how much they'd expect to sell and how much it cost us to produce it. And we both make like a 60 plus percent margin. And they're able to have their network of CSAs to sell it. We have our network of stores and farmers markets to sell it. And it's just like, they're, 
value-added food producers, which is kind of myself or a, a jam maker or whatever, taking ingredients and putting, mixing it together, cooking it, putting their secret sauce and packaging and selling it and, and producers uh, of farmers and then using the systems around us of farmers markets, of co-ops, or, or even you could say supermarkets too. Like that's a, that's a network, but like there's there's resources and programs out there that it works for everybody there. Um, I I haven't been able to fully articulate that the best way, but it it it, it really inspires me just in trying to help other people do this because again, like we're, we're not that unique in what we're doing. Michelle, one of Brian's experiences addresses a question you and I asked as COVID ended. Brian, what brought Michelle and me together to start the podcast was as COVID was settling in, we decided we wanted to help small greenhouse operators and farmers navigate supply chain disruption. And during our early months of creating the podcast, it was a pleasant surprise when we heard that there was a stimulating effect being observed in local farming, in in, uh, uh, small farms, farmers markets. Mm -hmm. And you've kind of lived and walked that path. And you're in the category that as COVID came to an end, Michelle and I asked the question, how much of this spike in local consumer behavior will be permanent. And uh, it's refreshing to hear that you are part of that permanent where you started uh, shopping at farmer's markets, eating locally and seasonally, and and it, and it uh, impacted your life. So kudos on that, Michelle. It, it helps reaffirm what, what we first got together to, to as an objective for us. And then secondly, let me just backtrack a little bit, Brian. And while a few moments ago, I presented myself as the student and the two of you as international travelers being the teacher, let me flip that around. Uh, and um, when Brian, you're talking about the challenges of working with the local farms and the scheduling, quote unquote, that you have to concern yourself with to keep your post-production value-added activities going. And Michelle, you've referenced vertical integration 10 minutes ago in in what Brian is uh, thinking about doing. So my experience, two points, one, I grew up through the 70s and 80s, Brian, where we didn't have to schedule much of anything. We didn't have to make much of an effort because whatever we planted, we sold. It was as uh, our industry was on that rise, uh, the hockey stick of sorts, uh, and it was very easy. But then as competition increased and big box retailing came in into the picture in the um, 80s and through the 90s, then it became much more challenging for us to sell everything that we grow. And it became much more important to deliberately schedule what we are going to produce the next year. So it's completely reversed. It's a 180 that's taken place early in my career. It didn't matter. Plant whatever you have and you'll sell it to now we almost have to have it sold before we even put the seed in the plug tray. So you're 
well along your way there. And I'm going to end this little flurry of comments by saying uh, there's no right or wrong way to do this, Brian, but Michelle knows I often say that I was brought up, my parents, my dad in particular taught me, if you can do something yourself, do it. And Michelle, I think we can translate those words into the phrase vertical integration, right? If, if you can do it. So hearing that it is a challenge for you to source reliably and, you know, you wake up at six in the morning, it's probably on your mind when you go to bed at night, where are you going to get the next thing? I would predict, and again, not right or wrong, it's just the way that I've learned to do things, that at some point you're going to consider, well, you are already, but at some point you might take that step and say, I need that dependability. I need now to grow some of my material. And looking further into the future, it might be that at some point you're producing the majority of what you need and you're only sourcing outside of your production for the fringes, the specialty cultivars that you might not be able to grow well. And all of that, Brian, comes down to, at some point, do you own the land? Do you have access to land to farm? Yeah. I'll, I'll just give a little shout out to one conversation. I have my own podcast called the Craft Hot Sauce Podcast, and we interview different hot sauce makers and growers. But one of the, the best conversations I think happened uh, with uh, Tim uh, Wilcox and Caroline Pam of Kitchen Garden Farm in uh, Sunderland. And they just kind of really detailed talk about how they got into it and their challenges and growing. And, but they, they were really talking about land and how it's, uh, they, they were just talking about, it's not like you go, house shopping and you look at Zillow and you're just like, Oh, this, this looks great. And, and let's get this. It's, it's very, um, uh, yeah, it, it, it's, it's multidimensional in that way. And, um, and seeing what they do, it's just, I could never imagine, um, us getting to that scale. So it, it's, there's just, there's so much to it because it's also kind of a business model too. Um, and it's a, like I came from kind of a software world is just like, get your money up front and then mm -hmm. like do the services and get your 80% margin. Farming is like, put your money up front months in advance, sell it and then like have net 30 day terms and then chase them down. And, and you never, there might be a, a hurricane and that's too bad. And it just like, so yeah, it's not, it's not easy, but um, there's there's systems out there. Kind of you mentioned with, with land, like the the USDA is doing a lot um, with programs trying to get people, kind of younger farmers, I into owning land and growing, and um, and it's inspiring to see other farmers take that path and everything. But yeah, we're we're we're, we're taking it one step at a time. But I, I think uh, just being able to evaluate what's going well, what's what's a challenge because um, uh, we can't we can't do everything. So we, we want to focus on what's best with us. And and there's the more we're doing this, the the more we're able to see partnerships that really benefit us. But also, like I, I feel really good about investing in, in, towards their operation as well. So 
And let me reiterate, Michelle, and and then you pick it up. That it's not a right or wrong thing. So I don't right. want to come across Brian as saying this is the only way you have to make this decision yep. and become a farmer. No, I'm not saying that at all. But it is a an option for for consideration. Michelle, Absolutely. I'm sorry you were going to say. Well, I would just say on the other side, the investment, I'm guessing, while not the same price as land, is probably also significant. If you've grown from three farms to 18 farms and your own production, I'm guessing that you've also grown in how much you're processing and your equipment and your facilities. And maybe that one walk-in cooler isn't enough anymore. And on that end, it's also very capital intensive. The risk is lower because you've got two years instead of two days to sell it, but inventory is expensive. And so how are you growing on that end as well? It's, it's the, the numbers are bigger as the years go, which is it just like, it, there's just bigger decisions and, and more details and strategy you have to think of. And hot sauce is, is if you're a hot sauce person identified as a hot sauce person, you're going to be getting some bottles around the holidays. So we have like kind of our, our October to November, December is, is really kind of crazy for us on, on the sales side, but you're absolutely right that we have put investment into this. Um, where I'm actually calling from is kind of our fermentation holding space and kind of office warehouse slash tasting room. <laughs> so there's a little bit of everything in here, but we're actually about to, we're actually in the middle of a a crowdfunding campaign with uh, Patronosity and MGCC. So we're trying to raise $20,000 to invest in our logistics and self-distribution efforts, as well as some uh, capital expenses on the uh, manufacturing and kitchen front. So we sourced 8,000 pounds of peppers and tomatoes and beets and carrots uh, last year. And uh, we pretty much took all those and chopped them up and with our hands. Um, <laughs> there, there's a machine, uh, a robo coop full moon thing where you can put like 60 pounds of produce and then just go vroom, and it just shreds it perfectly like we were taking our time uh, slicing it. So if we get that, we're going to be able to have better labor costs that go into our cost of materials and then be able to source more. So we're definitely looking to invest. But what I've learned and what I've been warned three years ago, and I, I didn't quite believe it because we've always been trying to be very profitable and lean, but they say you have to kind of put money in to grow. And uh, we're kind of finding that out right now, but we're, we're very confident in growing in our relationships trying to be a, uh i wouldn't say fully vertical but like more vertical than not um so that we can own the relationships which we value so much that's what really energizes us is feeling a part of that community and meeting new people um, but also having equipment what we do like we worked so hard from august to october with the produce that we need as much help as we can really with kind of equipment just to be able to pull that off as we're growing. So yeah, it's cool to see what's out there and, and learn from other people what's worked and, and what they're using, but we're really working on that crowdfunding campaign right now. 
And so now you have to be an expert in making hot sauce and sourcing hot sauce or growing plants. And you have some background in marketing. And now you're looking at financing. You're the kind of quintessential, whether it's a farm business or food business or any small business where you kind of have to do everything that you didn't ever expect you were going to have to do. Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) Well, it gives you an opportunity to keep learning. Michelle, I I think you and Brian definitely have more discussion and conversations uh, in front of you. Brian, I think you can see, having met Michelle now a couple of times, what brought the two of us together to kind of bridge the production to business side of things. And one thing that's fascinating me, guys, Brian, as a home beer brewer, I'm fascinated to hear how we are learning to harness fermentation to do other things in the food chain. And it's, it's just, it's fascinating to me to hear how you're incorporating it. Michelle Renee is a, a big home sauerkraut maker. And uh, yeah, as, as the science, as we understand more of the microbiology and the science of fermentation, uh, it's amazing how it's going to uh, serve our needs as we learn more and more. F- fermentation is awesome. <laughs> There's so like with everything we're discussing, like you can go, you could focus your life on that topic and go into it. And, and um, uh, that is absolutely something we're uh, working on. And you kind of said home brewer. My, my brother has been really into brewing and I, I've, uh, have a, a friend, uh, Emily from Efford farm who does like fermenting, foraging and farming. Um, we've worked with her on doing limited edition hot sauces where she makes, um, she's made a few vinegars for us. She made a scallion vinegar and a, uh, a beer vinegar. And so we're also learning about alcohol making, which is the first step, um, before kind of a double fermentation with, uh, vinegar or, or kombucha. Yeah, we're we're looking into that, but with the what one of the huge benefits uh, of fermentation, I'd say, is the flavor. There's a lot of research on there about um, gut health, but also certain ingredients like fermented turmeric uh, has a lot of like positive cognitive function. And and I don't have, um, I'm sure that there are um, research out there. I, I don't want to quote anything uh, misinformation, but. What's been really beneficial for me is we have about 4,000 pounds of produce that doesn't need to be refrigerated or, or in a, um, we, we keep it in kind of like a, a root cellar temperature. Um, and so we just don't have to spend so much money on like a, a freezer and, um, and it's doing its natural thing there. And that's what they did thousands of years ago. Um, so it, it's it, that I think that's the cool thing about food is just like we've been having to do it <laughs> since animals, humans are around. And, it, and it's uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's I will say it's climate change is is scary to seeing like in, in my short life uh, seeing differences there and and some of the devastation all over the world. So it, I, I think, yeah, it, it's challenging too, because we're like, we're, we're, we order a ton of glass and, and making glass isn't the, the most sustainable 
thing. You can recycle it, but it's still burning a lot of fossil fuels there. So something we think about, but I, I think that it, it's we, we try to even out some of the the resources that we use with ways that we can be a, a little bit more sustainable. Michelle, I think most of Brian's message and today's episode is encouraging in that it's supportive of, again, what brought the two of us together. How can we help the small operations flourish? So much of what we're talking about today from fermentation to um, Brian's individual recipes, the tailoring to the ethnicity pockets in one's community are all supportive of local production. Yeah. We're both nodding, but yes, <laughs> they absolutely, they are. I, I like to use the term right size, right? There are a lot of farms that can give you a specific size and they need a processor that can take the 300 pounds of habaneros. And whether that's a lot or a little, it really depends, but you need small producers and you need, or medium-sized producers and medium-sized processors and, and grocery stores. And there's something about that size that fits. And if you got really big, you might be able to continue to work with some of the small farms on special runs, which I think is a really creative way that you're doing it or on specific products. But, you know, at some point, and it makes sense why your production is on those sun gold tomatoes that are the heart of your operation and you'll need a different size. And and that's the part of the supply chain I really like. And, And you need those pieces to fit together. It's not just, we need a piece of equipment or a local grocer or something to make a local supply chain work. We need all of these pieces. Absolutely. Hey, um, Michelle, I'm going to start winding down my, my comment. Brian, you've uh, referenced this twice, and I'm going to take liberty now. Uh, you've referenced selling season tickets for the Celtics twice. So <laughs> I grew up here. Michelle is a transplant. She is not a native Bostonian sports team follower. So I can, re- you, you flashed me back to the 1960s with Bill Russell and, and Celtics, where it was a rite of passage in the spring that the Celtics would hang another banner. Yeah. So I would love at some time in the future to hear more about your experience there with the uh, Boston Celtics. Well, m- my first day on the job was when they traded Paul Pierce and KG oh. and Doc Rivers. Uh, so I was selling the dream in the Brooklyn Nets draft picks, which is right now. So <laughs> I-, I think we got Banner 18 coming up right right in a couple months that's in uh, yeah we might be dating this episode so we'll see when when it gets post, post right right <laughs> how, how we've done but we'll, we'll uh, still be around we'll still be in it'll be uh starting the finals right now all right um <laughs> hey it was a pleasure meeting you i hope our paths cross again i'll let michelle wind wind the episode down with you thank you It was a pleasure talking with you today. We'd love to know where we can find you online in grocery stores, farmers markets, where you're going to be this summer. Yeah, absolutely. I I do want to just give a little shout out to our Patronicity crowdfunding campaign, which is patronicity.com forward slash crack sauce. And that's spelled the Irish way, uh, C-R-A-I-C. 
If you go to cracksauce.com, uh, we have all our events for the entire summer. We're doing more days than not. We're doing farmers markets and around the Massachusetts area. We also have a where can you find us? So you can search uh, stores that sell our products. Um, they're, they're mainly kind of local independent shops. And yeah, if, you, if you're interested in learning more about different hot sauce makers and um, our podcast uh, is the Craft Hot Sauce Podcast. And we kind of have an extension uh, with a, a monthly newsletter and a lot of other stories on crafthotsauce.com. Uh, so yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's, um, I, I like doing these because a lot of these thoughts are kind of in my head, but I don't have like the, the time and opportunity to really reflect and expand and, and get your points of views to help that. So um, um, yeah, I'm really excited for the future and, and seeing the, I think the opportunity for local growth, it, it's not a quick, easy way to get rich or do something, but it, it, it's, I'd say it, it's rich for your soul and for putting a lot into to every day. So um, yeah, thank you so much for having us. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Grower and The Economist. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate it wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps us get discovered by new listeners. If you have questions, concerns, or would like to suggest a podcast topic, please email me at michelle at I love hearing from you. Until next time.